You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served, where we bring you the latest in trending legal news on a weekly basis here on Black Hollywood Live. My name is Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal defense attorney and a host here on Justice is Served. And today I'm joined by my partner in crime, attorney and co-host, Chelsea Galicia. Hey, Chelsea. Hi there. All right. Um, before we kick off the show, I want to ask all our viewers to stay with us through the duration of the show. We're going to be discussing Rachel Dolezal's race-faking scandal, um, the murderers on the loose in upstate New York with the help of a prison employee, uh, the obscure Ohio law allowing citizens to essentially petition the court for the arrest of the officers in the Tamir Rice shooting death, as well as medical marijuana, which according to the Colorado Supreme Court, um, may cost you your job. So let's start it, uh, get started, Chelsea, with our case of the week, which is all about Rachel Dolezal, the president of the NAACP's Spokane, Washington chapter, who um, recently resigned from her position after her parents last week blew her covers and went on the media, and this went viral all over social media, um, stating that she is white, they are white, um, everybody's Caucasian. In fact, there's maybe 10% Native American in her blood, but that's about it. They can't understand why she's gone on for so many years denying her true ethnicity, um, or race, I should say, and um, and has pretended to be African American when she, in fact, isn't. Um, and, you know, the, the, obviously, the dynamics in this family is... Um, is a little skewed. I think she's the parents are estranged, and uh, they had no qualms about telling the truth um, uh, about Rachel's true race. Uh, the, the, the fact that she's white. In fact, she's from Montana. She's 37 years old, um, and she went to a um, very black college, Howard University. She studied studied African American. Um, I think studies was her major, um, and um, she's very much academically involved in, in the civil rights area. She has been a uh, teacher in the Washington area um, in college, teaching African American studies, and she has apparently done a fantastic job in the course of her work for the NAACP, um, which is the largest and oldest civil rights organization in the nation. So it's a significant job that she's had specifically in this area in Spokane, Washington, which is 90% white, um, 10%, actually 2% black. Um, and, uh, and, and according to some of the leaders um, in her chapter, she has done amazing work for this organization. And so, Chelsea, um, you know, what's interesting to me is the length to which she's gone to pretend like she's black when she's not. She had come up with a story um, about her father being a black cop uh, and and escaping the South. Um, her father's white and he was not a cop. And um, really sort of, it's not just about curling her hair and changing the color of her skin. She's gone through you know, to great lengths to pretend as though she's 
African-American. And so yesterday, uh, in an interview with Matt Lauer on the Today Show, she claimed, um, when she was asked, you know, uh, what are you? She said, I identify as black. So it's the first time she uh, uses the word identify as opposed to I am, right? Um, so my question to you, Chelsea, is look, Bruce Jenner woke up one day and it was like, hello, Caitlin. Um, why can't this woman uh, choose to be African-American if that's what she chooses to do? Well, even though Caitlin was born to us in a day, I think if you um, heard Bruce's story, he's always felt like a woman. And perhaps this isn't fair. You do get to maybe choose your sex, but you don't get to choose your your race. I think people are a little uh, turned off by the fact, like, if you're really black, you can't just decide to be white. There's no way that you can pass as white no matter, mm-hmm. you know, what you try and do. Um, even Michael Jackson, who people say tried to pass as white, was mm-hmm. obviously unsuccessful because we all knew that he wasn't. So I, I'm not... The the whole part about is it really a choice? I don't know. That's less important to me than like the deception. And at first I thought, well, maybe she was doing it because she didn't think that she could do this type of work and be an advocate for this community if she wasn't black. And that's Mm -hmm. why she said she let people think she was and then just never corrected them. And that she referred to a man, uh, a black man as her uh, dad and pointed out to Matt Lauer that a father is not necessarily the same as a dad, that she thinks this man uh, is her dad in uh, in terms of raising her and who she looks up to and who looks out for her. So she's just... Uh, I don't want to say done a good job, but she's just done a a good job of avoiding somehow the subject long enough until this reporter just showed up in her face one day and sort of caused this to come out. But people don't want to be lied to. And it looks like if you look at the NAACP's um, you know, record, they have a lot of white people working for the organization mm-hmm. and successfully being able to advocate. So she may have been a stronger ally has she just been truthful. Right. Right. And I agree with you, but I think that it's not, um, this is the part I disagree with. I don't think that she's just kind of denied and, and skidded around her race. I think she's flat out lied about being black. She was married to a black man. She, she on applications, she claimed she was black. There was an application for her to um, uh, be on the uh, sort of the police commission in her area. And she lied about being black on that application. Um, and I think, I think it is about the deception and, and a lot of the African Americans in the NAACP are, um, they feel betrayed by her because they feel like she is going around and, and despite all the great stuff she's done. Okay. And the fact that you don't have to be a person of color to lead, uh, in the NAACP or be a member of NAACP. But the fact of the matter is, is that she is, um, never really suffered the consequences of being a black woman in, in uh, racist America. She grew up in Montana, blonde, blue eyed, you know, white little girl. Um, and I, I'm sure that's a different life than had she been African American. Um, and so a lot of African Americans are angry that she is now benefiting from this sort of being in the limelight as the leader of the N, you know, NAACP chapter without really having, you know, lived what it's like to be a black woman. But I think she's, um, I think one of the reasons she probably, uh, her, her parents say that she started associating or 
um, identifying as African-American, or there was some signs of it around the age of seven. So that early on. And then it sort of progressed, and then it definitely in college when she was in a primarily black university well, setting. Well, even before that, her parents had adopted um, black children, right. so she had black siblings in right. her teenage years. So it's like even in her immediate household. So, But, but I think that um, ultimately being that she's an activist and that she's in academics, that world sort of lends itself, you know, it, it being a black woman, I think is a lot more attractive in that, in that world. Um, you know, being black in general is looked at sort of the stronger, wiser, uh, natural, uh, persona. And I think that it's, it's, it was easier for her and it was, um, more suitable to to her world essentially to be black um and and like you said if she grew up with siblings and and you know uh, she essentially lived it lived the culture um that's who she and i you know again i think it's um she should have been honest about it i think that's what's really costing her all this attention and perhaps taking away from and even yesterday on the today show she she had an opportunity to say look i know i'm white i i'm fully aware of that i acknowledge that when when i was asked are you black i should have said in that moment are you asking if i racially white or do i culturally and identity wise identify with the black experience mm-hmm. but instead she just said i don't understand this question as yeah. though it was some vague and ab- ambiguous question she knew exactly what the guy it's, was it's asking it's like clinton-esque right <laughs> bill clinton with that with the whole uh what is intercourse or what was so, sex or so whatever maybe she, she didn't think that she had a right to to choose her you know culture and that she would have had to be white if everybody knew that she was white because you know uh white people get made fun of when they try and be act black you know Mm -hmm. being called a wigger and things of that nature so maybe she was afraid of being alienated from the community that she wanted to associate with although she could have just been honest about it mm-hmm. when she was really asked. So I, I was looking for every reason to try and defend her. Maybe <laughs> because I thought, you know, if she's done great work and she really believes in the cause and she really identifies with the experience, I mean, you don't have to be black to acknowledge and understand the experience. You probably, I mean, I can't understand it the same as if I had been, you know, racially profiled or something like that, but I can as best as empathy, human empathy allows me to understand and sympathize with that, uh, feeling Mm -hmm. and try and be an advocate for its change Mm -hmm. without ever becoming. But I think, and we've talked about this on previous shows, um, we all have, you know, as Americans, this sort of underlying, even if it's just a tiny little bit of racial bias. And I wonder, I have to wonder whether she would have gone so far and been so successful in her field had it been known that she is, in fact, not African American, and that's you what know? I thought. And I think that's the fear she probably had. But I think there are other white leaders, presidents, even right, right. of NAACP chapters. Right. So when I learned that, I was a little less sympathetic right. to that argument. And so we want to hear from our audience: um, uh, Does an activist and a voice for the people of color uh, necessarily have to be of color to to do their job right and for people to have um, confidence in in what they're doing for the community? We want to hear from you, so please tweet us at Azari Law and at Chelsea Galicia. And right. I'm going to turn it over to Chelsea for 
um, an announcement that we have and as well as on the docket. Yes. So while we're asking for your opinion, we would like your opinion about this show in general. So we're asking that you go to podcastone.com and the one in the podcast one is spelled out O-N-E so that we can get feedback from you about what you think about this show, how we can serve you better, hear your thoughts, learn who you are. So again, please go to podcastone.com and fill out this survey. We really value your feedback as always. And especially with this survey, we would really appreciate you taking the, I think it's all three minutes it would take for you to go and complete the survey. So head on over to do that. We'll wait. Okay, maybe not. Well, you can pause us and then come back. But really, mm-hmm. please do fill out that survey. We really do look at it. It really does matter to us as we're trying to bring you the best show possible. All right. So back to uh, the show. We're going to do our on the docket series now. We're starting with the case of a prison break. So there are it has now been one week since two murderers escaped from a New York prison. It turns out that they didn't escape alone, that a prison employee named Joyce Mitchell helped them out. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they had developed a friendship with this lady, although I'm reading now that with one of the men, she may have had a sexual relationship that occurred in the Taylor part of the correctional facility. So somehow this friendship potentially turned romantic relationship um, became a relationship where she thought she would help them escape and she provided them tools, power tools, in in fact, uh, so that they can escape. They escaped by digging through a cell wall and then out a manhole. Um, She has been charged with a felony uh, promoting uh, prison contraband and a misdemeanor charge of criminal facilitation for providing tools and assistance. I can't believe there's not an actual felony for aiding in the escape of uh, murderers from prison. Yeah. Okay. Um, And if she's convicted of these, she faces up to eight years. So uh, she's now being cooperative. Apparently, she's not even taking advantage of her right to have a an attorney present. She's willfully, freely speaking to investigators. And so every day, new uh, details come out. Today, uh, there was a detail about the fact that... Uh, this woman's husband, who also worked mm-hmm. at the prison, was maybe the subject of a of a plot to be killed. Uh, a part of this um, this escape plan. The escape plan at some point also included uh, her, uh, Joyce Mitchell, being the the driver, the mm-hmm. getaway driver. And apparently, she had a change of heart at the last minute. So, as of now, you know. Nearly a thousand state, local, and federal law enforcement uh, officials have been out looking for these two men. The, the the coverage area that they're looking is widening. It's been a week. This is you know a massive manhunt. Do you think that the length of time that it takes and the expense that it, it costs will make a difference to her and her her cooperation with the investigation will make a difference? to what happens in the prosecution against her or it doesn't yeah, matter. I absolutely and- think uh I don't I don't think the length of the investigation and the um the resources that it has cost is going to ultimately make a difference for Joyce Mitchell, but I think definitely her cooperation will help her if it's if it's going to produce something fruitful for law enforcement. So in this case, um you know, uh what I read was that usually in that area in New York, um it, within 24 hours they apprehend uh, prison escapees. In this case, it's well over 24 hours. It's a, it's a week now that they're gone. Um, but um, 
apparently there, her phone was used to make some calls um, around the time of the escape. And there, the calls were made to one of the inmates, Richard Matt's friends or family, people that were associated with him. And so there is um, hope that because of her alleged relationship with them and the fact that he used her phone, that this is going to lead law enforcement into an area beyond where they've searched to hopefully try to look at it. You know, as more time goes by, to me, it's less likely that these guys are going to get caught anytime soon. Um, they came close. Uh, at, at some point, they did um, a smell test, and uh, near a Subway sandwich shop, they, they found uh, actually um, wrappers from the prison commissary, which mm-hmm. indicated that these guys may have been there uh, with no money in their pocket. They weren't about to get a Subway sandwich, but they may have been rummaging through the trash there for food, um, but the bottom line is they weren't there. They're not around. And who knows when they're going to be be found. So if they are not found, you think she'll spend the same amount of time in prison if they are? Well, you know, I, it depends on the laws of New York in, in um you know, in federal cases or even in, in local cases here in Los Angeles and California. If the cooperation is going to earn the defendant some kind of lenience in terms of their sentence or something or the charge, it has to actually lead to the apprehension and arrest of, uh, you know, somebody out there on the loose. Somebody that the, 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 you know, government doesn't already know about or they know about and they don't know where to find the person. Once they arrest that person and charge them, and, you know, you're all in when you're cooperating. You can't be half pregnant. And so if you're cooperating, then, you know, you're also agreeing to testify a trial against that person. And a lot of defendants um, are skittish about that. They're afraid of that, rightfully so, because their safety is at issue um, to show up to court and snitch and, and, and you know, be an informant um, role on somebody is is not a safe thing for most defendants to do. And so ultimately, you know, I don't know to be to, to give you a straight answer. Uh, what the laws in New York and in this county, whether she has to uh, actually lead to their arrest yeah. for her to get something or does her attempt and, and, and the fact that she's being credible and honest and candid with law enforcement, doing everything she possibly can to try to locate these guys. Yeah. You know, maybe one of the things I was thinking about is one of the things that they, if they haven't done with her, that they could do with her is to set up a... Uh, you know, a, a, a fake call, um, which police all, uh, often do, you know, if she had some kind of a love relationship with uh, inmate Matt, maybe she can send a nice loving text and get him to talk to her and set up a rendezvous and that's yeah. how they can get to him. But I think these guys are smarter than that. There are no way, I mean, now that they're out, I don't think they're going to continue a relationship with a prison employee. Right. Right. So Especially if she decided last minute, oh, I'm not going to be your getaway driver and right. that probably threw a wrench now in the Now she's plan. an enemy because right. she's But with I the think prison. that... You know, the, the, the idea of a uh, fear that these two murderers are out on the loose, uh, will make jurors more likely to punish her more harshly than if they are caught. Mm-hmm. So even if her, you know, her actions are the same, if they don't get caught, there's more fear in the minds, uh, of the community, of the jurors. And so I think that she better, you know, she's hoping and praying, I think, more than almost all of us that they get found. Because right. I think that she'll probably end up in jail longer, right? If they if they don't find them, right? So can't be longer than eight years, though. That's the max, right? I, but I that's insane that there's no mm-hmm. actual law for helping people escape jail. Well, yeah, but. and then I was thinking that once these two are apprehended and brought back to prison, 
how much longer are they going to do? They're they're murderers, so if they're they're in for murder, they they're at least there for life without parole. Um, you know, this is not a capital crime. I guess so they're they certainly not going to get. Lose. They're not going to get death row. Um, they're not going to get death sentence. So. I don't know. I mean, they're probably just going to be brought back, and that's that's the end of it. Maybe in a higher security um, prison or cell. But anyway. Okay. So here is a follow-up to a story that we started covering since it, it occurred back in November. You'll remember the case of Tamir Rice. He was a 12-year-old boy that was playing in the park with a gun. Somebody noticed that he was, called the police, uh, and said, this kid is, looks like to be a kid, is playing with a, with a gun. The police show up, and before even the car is stopped, police shoot and kill him. Mm-hmm. And this is the the case where the, the sister comes up a few minutes later and is like, oh my God, they shot my brother. And then she's treated like a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and as of now, there have been no charges been brought. Doesn't look like anything's happened. But there is a, a law in Ohio that allows citizens who are knowledgeable of the facts to uh, file an affidavit with the court and ask them to, to find probable cause. Um, there's a little bit of confusion about whether that law can be used to file charges or just to get a judge's opinion. Mm-hmm. But the interesting part is that that affidavit was filed and the judge said, yes, there's probable cause for murder, involuntary manslaughter, mm-hmm. reckless um, homicide, homicide, uh, dereliction of, of duty. So yes, there's probable cause, but there's really nothing that this means it's really just a nice opinion. Mm -hmm. I have no authority to do anything with this unless prosecutors file charges. Well, he he doesn't have the authority to order their arrest. So what good is finding probable cause where you cannot bring the the culprits to justice? That was going to be my question. Is right. I mean is this just a feel good great <laughs> law to have but it doesn't make a difference? I think uh it's it's giving the citizens of Cleveland some sort of reprieve to know that a judge is siding with them. And, um, you know, this was such an outrageous case, as you described. I think that it's it's some sense, it's giving some people a sense of peace that at least a judge is seeing through this and finds both of these officers um, to have been um, criminally culpable. But you know the the now the onus is on the prosecutor the judge said okay you know you need to file the complaint that then and then be able to arrest the officers and the the district attorney for this county has replied that as with all cases of police brutality and use of force we're going to submit this for grand jury indictment and you know i i believe in the grand jury system but i have to say that it's it's a real weak move for a prosecutor because he doesn't want the responsibility. He doesn't want to be the one, even though the one can have a lot of influence, as we know in Ferguson and other cases, on the grand jury because the prosecutor is wearing the hat of both prosecutor and defense attorney. Um, He doesn't want to be able to walk away with a note. Like, he doesn't want to be able to uh, walk away with a decision that is going to haunt him either way. And so it's easier to say, hey, I submitted it to grand jury. If they came back with a no bill, they did it, uh, but even now though we know that judge, you can influence the grand jury. But now with the judge saying it, it I mean, if, if you don't, you look like a schmuck. It is your job to bring charges, and I don't even know how they were able to get an opinion like this. Most courts, you can't just get a, a, a uh, 
an advice from a judge like is there you have to bring charges first and then judges decide like you can't go to the supreme court when you're thinking of a new law and say hey is this gonna pass constitutional Mm -hmm. muster they don't issue those kinds of opinions they only hear real cases Mm -hmm. so it's interesting that they would have this but you i mean it would almost be like yeah he has to do something with this Mm -hmm. i don't know what's taking the grand jury process so long is it in your experience I mean, it hasn't been submitted to grand jury. So it's November and now we're in June. He's now going to submit it to grand jury because wait, listen, I think that's one thing that's accomplished by this judge's ruling is that now there's pressure for either the prosecution to file a complaint or submit the case to grand jury. So at least now we're going to see the case being uh, officially reviewed for indictment. Right. It's hard to ignore it now. Yeah. It's, 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 it's up, uh, it's brought, back up into uh, the forefront of, of the news there. So, um, you know, we also want to hear from our viewers on this. Please tweet us and share your thoughts with us. Um, Chelsea can be tweeted at... Chelsea Galicia. And at Azari Law. All right. So now, a marijuana law, legal in Colorado, not even just medical, but for recreational use. But a quadriplegic man, a guy named Brandon Coates, who at the age of 16 was a passenger in a car accident. Uh, the car hit a tree. He's been a quadriplegic since. He's got terrible spasms and pain as a result of that. He used traditional medication for a long time until the effects started to wane and it wasn't providing him much relief anymore. When medical marijuana became an option, his doctor recommended that to him. Mm-hmm. He's been on the state registry of medical marijuana users and uh, he was fired from his job at Dish Network. Mm-hmm. So the question in that case was can you Well be- he was fired for testing dirty. Right. So teach THC in a system. Right. So, so they, they did a, a what they said was a, a random drug test mm-hmm. and it turned out positive. Mm-hmm. There is no indication, there was no argument that the marijuana had any impairment mm-hmm. on his work performance. In reality, he was a good employee mm-hmm. who got great performance reviews. There were no complaints about him. Uh, the The only issue was whether he had it in his system at all, because their policy, which is interesting. It says to ensure a safe and productive work environment, mm-hmm. they reserve their right to do mm-hmm. drug testing. So if the drug testing is for safety and productivity and there's no safety issues with his use of medical marijuana, he's not operating a machine or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a telephone operator. Mm-hmm. His productivity apparently has been just fine. He's gotten great performance reviews. He's fired anyway once they find that he's using THC at work just because while he's at work, it shows up in his system on a drug test. He's fired for it. He um, sues. And now the Colorado Supreme Court has sided with Dish after sitting mm-hmm. on this for, for a year uh, that because he he was doing an activity that was legal in the state of Colorado, but mm-hmm. not legal federally mm-hmm. that he wasn't protected by the um this exception where if you're doing a lawful activity you can't be be fired for mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. i'm sort of appalled mm-hmm. by this decision do can you make sense of this or well, are you left yes and scratching no. your head no i think yes and no i mean i think most employers have zero tolerance for 
uh, dirty drug tests. Um, it, it's very hard to know that, you know, somebody is uh, has a drug in their system. Um, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Do a quantitative lab uh, test on every employee who tests dirty to see how much of it was used? And there's no way they to know. They didn't even care about that. It was right. that it showed up at all. That that's that's why because they can't care about that. There's no way for them to m- know um, somebody who used marijuana a week or two weeks ago versus someone who used in their car before they but, walked into the workplace. But why, why does it matter if he's got a prescription for it? It's legal in that state. And that's exactly what it is. The problems that we see over and over again with marijuana is this um, schizophrenia in in that world because federal law makes it illegal. State laws, a lot of states have made it legal. Some periods, some only medical. But under federal law, any type of marijuana is illegal. The possession of it, the distribution of it, the growth of it, all of it is illegal. So that's the problem we have. But is, is that it the job of the Colorado Supreme Court to uphold federal law, or is it their job to well, uphold I believe the, state law? It would be state law, but I, 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 I my understanding is is that um, the the law regarding use use I mean lawful sorry the law regarding lawful use um, is something that under state law perhaps defers to federal law that defines defined um in other words the term lawful under that statute probably is defined as something that's lawful under all laws of the united states but it actually doesn't say that i looked Mm -hmm. at the at the language of the law unlawful prohibition of legal activities as a condition of employment nowhere in there does it even say state and federal. federal it doesn't say that at all well this certainly can go up to the u.s supreme court which would be and, fascinating which would be fascinating and you know i'm sure some of our viewers have maybe had some frustrating experiences with this issue um think about the times where you may have been pulled over um and you might have had THC in your system because you're a medical marijuana patient and you smoke marijuana i don't know three days before being pulled over and you know and, and you submit a blood test and and, you know, the CHP assumes that you're driving under the influence. It's very difficult to prove uh, when the marijuana was ingested, um, how much of it is in your system. There are some tests that you can do, but ultimately it's it's um, it's not um it's not determinative. So um, we do want to hear from you. Let us know what your thoughts are on this topic, um, because we always would like to tailor the show to the liking of our viewers and you can tweet me at azari law and chelsea at chelsea galicia and i think this brings us to the close of today's edition of justice is served we thank you all so much for joining us and we look forward to seeing you right here next week on justice is served thank you everyone bye-bye From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.